God, we know that in just a couple of hours, there will be uh, millions, millions of people who will be gathered together to uh, not only watch a football game, but to partake in uh, an act of worship. And God, for some, that this is, uh, this is their church. And uh, Lord, we think of those people who um, will be watching the game tonight, and, uh, and Lord, their hearts are, are far from you, and yet they will be demonstrating uh, worship in their passion and in their attentiveness. And uh, Lord, I just pray, my prayer for us is that, is that we as a church would not be outdone uh, by the Super Bowl. God, that our worship would be passionate and would be glorifying to you because you are the living and true God. And so, Lord, I pray as we turn to your word, as we uh, lean into your word being preached, God, I pray that we would listen with worshipful hearts, God, that we would be attentive to what you have for us today, and Lord, that your name would be, would be glorified. God, we want to lift up the name of Jesus because he's worthy of our praise. So I pray that you'd work in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, our passage today uh, in, in verses 21 through 25 is very much dependent on the previous passage in verses 13 uh, through 17. So let me just kind of summarize the previous passage before, uh, before we take a deep dive into our passage uh, today. The passage in verses 13 through 17, Peter exhorts us to see that willful and normative submission and obedience should characterize our lives as it relates to the government and as it relates to our employees. And so when we receive suffering unjustly. We are to consider it a grace. But Peter makes it really, really clear in verses, in verses 13 through 17 that that suffering comes as a result of us being a Christ follower, okay? In verse 20, he highlights that. Let me just, let me read verses 19 uh, and 20 just to give us a, a feel for this. It says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, our passage this morning does deal with the issue of suffering. And Peter is transitioning from, from declaring that if you're a Christ follower living as an exile in this world, you're going to experience suffering unjustly for doing good. And so he pivots from there to moving to our passage this morning, trying to answer the question, well, how do we persevere through suffering when it's unjust? How do we do that well in a way that's actually godly and righteous, that glorifies God? And so this is somewhat of a, of a heavy topic. And so I couldn't help but smile when I was reading a satire article this past week by the Babylon Bee. Now, for those of you who you don't know what the Babylon Bee is, it's this um, it's a satire uh, sort of spoof where they come out with different articles related to Christian ma- matters. It's absolutely uh, hilarious. It's kind of like The Onion, but just with, uh, with Christian issues. Well, they came out with an article this past week titled, Man Unsure if He's Persecuted Because He's a Christian or Because He's a Massive Jerk. Okay, so it, it like caught my attention. It's like, oh man, we're studying that in, in First Peter. So, uh, so let's just read a couple lines here. It's going to set up a, a point that you'll hopefully see uh, from the passage. It says, after getting into yet another argument on Facebook Monday morning, local believer Hank Rickard found himself blocked by several of his friends and family members 
But the 32-year-old Christian was still unable to figure out if this new wave of persecution was because of his firm faith in Jesus or because of the fact that he's a total jerkwad. Now, so, thank you, yeah. So, sources confirm that this isn't the first time the totally obnoxious follower of Jesus has found himself in this situation. According to Rickard, he's constantly suffering persecution and exclusion in the workplace, among his family members, and even at church. But he's never entirely certain if it's his reprehensible personality or his love for Jesus being the cause. He said this, I'm always getting asked to leave restaurants and grocery stores for loudly arguing with people. I guess it's just my cross to bear in a culture that's diametrically opposed to the teachings of Jesus. That's, it's a really, if you want a good laugh, like look this up and, and read it. It's pretty funny. But reading that article, it, it raises a really, really good point that's absolutely fundamental to understanding our passage and really the whole chapter 2 of 1 Peter. See, I think Peter would agree with this, and, and this is the point of that article, that the suffering that we as Christians go through should be caused, not because we're annoying, not because we're argumentative, but because we're doing good as followers of Jesus, living as an exile in this world, and we look different than the world. And so the suffering that Peter is, is looking at in chapter 2, it's not just any kind of suffering. It's not suffering because your coach is yelling at you because you're lazy. It's not suffering caused because, uh, because of your poor work uh, performance at work, and so your boss gets on you. This isn't suffering due to an illness or cancer of some sort. But the suffering that Peter is referring to here is caused because you're a follower of Jesus doing good in a culture that is diametrically opposed to the gospel and the teachings of Jesus. So I want us to know that on the front end before we dive into this passage, because if we start interpreting suffering however we want to define it, we're going to misapply the whole point of this passage. In fact, look with me at verse 21 in our passage. Peter says, for to this you have been called. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. What, what is the this that, that Peter says that we've been called to? Well, looking at, at the context here, this is the this that we've been called to is suffering for doing good. This is a calling for us as believers, as we live as, as exiles in this world, to suffer unjustly for doing good. And so, on one hand, that should cause us to kind of take a big gulp, like, wow, following Jesus, I'm going to actually have to suffer? And on one hand, yes, because 2 Timothy 3 says that if you desire to live a godly life, you will be persecuted, okay? So on one hand, this is kind of a steep call, but on the other hand, it should encourage us because if we've been called to it, God is the one driving that calling, that the suffering that we experience is not a surprise to God. It didn't catch him off guard if we're suffering unjustly for doing good. The question that I want us to wrestle with this morning is, how do we do that well? Like, how do we suffer unjustly well in a way that, that glorifies God, in a way that's actually godly? Like, how does, that, how does that actually work practically? Like, how should we think when being an exile actually creates a platform for suffering? Or how do we respond when, when people say hurtful or untrue things about us just because we're a follower of Jesus? What types of truths should we rehearse in our souls when we experience pain just because we're an exiled Christian? 
or maybe more, more specifically here, maybe more personally, how do you respond when a family member mocks you because you're a follower of Jesus? What do you do when, when you're in the workplace and your boss or a coworker kind of starts making some, some snide remarks because you're that Jesus person at the workplace? Or maybe at school and you're, you're being excluded from your friends at school just because you're a Christian who goes to church. How, how do we respond to suffering unjustly well? Well, before we start answering that question, I, I want to address something else that I was kind of wrestling with um, as I was preparing this week. I'm reading this passage, and, and if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, um, suffering unjustly. Like, I live in America. Like, I live in, in a free country where I don't really experience suffering on a daily basis for being a follower of Jesus. That's not something that, that is normative for me. And so there's almost a little bit of a gap between Peter, who's writing to first century Christians, where it was normative for them to suffer for doing good and intense persecution. And then you look at us, where we live in America, where it's free to practice the religion of Christianity, and we have some suffering that we experience. But, but how, do we, how do we make sense of that? I just want to give you just a few observations before, before we dive in here. That if you're here today, and, and you don't experience suffering unjustly for doing good on a daily basis, I just want to encourage you that you will. That that day is coming, and if you look at the landscape of our culture, that being a Christian in America and in the culture that we live in is starting to become not so much of a good thing. That maybe you've experienced this with unbelievers or people at the workplace, when they hear that you're a Christian, they kind of they give you an interesting look, like, so, so you believe everything in the Bible? Like, you, you believe that, that there's this Jesus guy who died and then rose again? Like, you, you believe all that stuff? You believe in an, in an Adam and Eve and, and all of that? Like, like, our culture is starting to become uncoupled with Christianity, and the result will be persecution and suffering in the near future for those who claim the name of Jesus. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing because it's going to get harder and harder to hide. And, and so I don't want to completely throw the culture under the bus as far as why we don't experience suffering on a daily basis because the other reason why we may not experience suffering on a daily basis for doing good is because some of us are hiding the fact that we're actually a Christian, that we kind of are incognito believers where the people at our workplace or the people who are unbelievers in our sphere of influence, they don't know that you're a Christian. And so, of course, you're not going to experience suffering if they don't know you're a Christian. And so, if, if you're kind of hiding the fact that you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to avoid suffering. But I really believe a, a day is coming in our culture where it's going to get harder and harder to hide as a follower of Jesus that the line in the sand will be drawn. So, what do we do with this passage? Okay, what, like, there's some of us here this morning, like you would say, you know, Chris, like, Day in and day out, I do experience suffering for being a Christian. Like, there are people in my family, or people at the workplace, or my neighborhood that, that this is real for me. And so for those of you who, that, that's your story, that's your, the season of life that you're in, like, you look at this passage and you're like, I need this today. Like, I, I need the truth. I need to understand how to suffer well unjustly. And praise the Lord for that. But then there's others of us where suffering for doing good just isn't a common theme in your life right now. Not yet. And so I just want to encourage you to, to take this sermon, take some of the principles that are in this passage, 
and just kind of hold on to it. Like file it away in your heart. Go back to this when you do experience suffering for being a Christian. Like I said earlier, it's going to be harder and harder to hide as a Christian. So how do we suffer unjustly well? Well, this passage here, verses 21 through 25, I see two main principles that Peter gives us in order to suffer well. Look with me at verse uh, 21, because he's going to allude to the two in verse 21 and then unpack them in verses 22 through 25. He says, For to this you have been called, which we've already addressed, because Christ also suffered for you, and then he says, leaving you an example. Let's just stop there for a moment. These, These are the two principles he's alluding to. He says, Christ suffered for you. And what Peter is alluding to is the substitutionary death of Jesus that he will further unpack in verses 24 and 25. But then he says that Christ also left you something. He gave you something. And what was that? He gave you, he left you an example so that we might follow in his steps. Okay, so that's the second principle. So we got these two principles that will help guide us in understanding how to suffer well. And I could sum it up this way, that we are to number one, follow Christ's example in verses 21 through 23. And then number two, that we are to remember Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. Those are the two principles that will help guide us in understanding how to suffer well that I'll spend the rest of our time unpacking here. So let's look at the first one here. Follow Christ's example. Verse 21 through uh, 23. Let's read uh, verse 21 here. It says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Now, Peter is now helping us understand how it is that we suffer unjustly well by first saying, imitate the example that Christ has set for us. In fact, that word example in verse 21, do you see it in verse 21? That word is really, really fascinating in the Greek. See, in the first century here, this word was used to refer to a pattern of letters of the alphabet, which children learning to write would trace. And so this actually serves as a powerful image for what we are to do with the example of Jesus and how Jesus responded to suffering. And so like our, our English words like example, model, or pattern, they're, they're actually really too weak to get across the meaning. But this word, it suggests the closest of copies and imitation. And the point here is because Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or pattern or model as if it's one of many, but Jesus is actually the paradigm by which we write large the letters of the gospel in our lives. That if we really are to live as, as servants of the living God, as Peter described in the last section, then the essence of our identity is a willingness to suffer unjustly in the same way as Jesus did. So Jesus left us this pattern over which we trace out our lives in order that we might follow in his footsteps. Look, I don't know about you, but that, that's really good news. Like, that's good news because when you experience suffering for doing good, you don't have to guess of how to respond. You don't have to kind of guess, how do I respond in this situation or that situation? But Jesus has actually laid out the, the footprints that we trace our lives around in order to figure out how to respond to suffering well. And so we imitate the example of Jesus. 
Okay, so the next question is, so how did Jesus respond to suffering unjustly? So what, what is that pattern that we are to trace our lives with? Well, let me point out a couple of observations here. Look with me at verses 22 and 23. Peter says, here's the pattern. He says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Peter shows us that the way that Jesus responded was, number one, he committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. He did not revile in return or threaten but he entrusted himself to the just judge. Now you look at that list, and if you're like me, you're thinking, that is a hefty list. Like that, that is a strong list that I'm supposed to imitate. Like I'm supposed to follow that example in the face of suffering. Like how do we, how do we understand that list as we see Peter kind of pulling things from different places? Well, I first want to draw our attention that in order for us to understand verses 22 and 23, and really our whole passage, we need to understand that Peter is quoting Isaiah 53, the, the, the suffering servant. Okay, let me, let me read Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 7, because you're going to see our passage really come from this, from this section in Isaiah 53. Let me read this and then unpack it. It says, But he, referring to Jesus, was pierced for our transgressions. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Does that, does that ring a bell? That, that's verses 24 and 25 of our passage. Okay? Now look at Isaiah 53 verse 7. It says, he, referring to Jesus, was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet... He opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shares is silent. So he opened not his mouth. See, Peter is is borrowing Isaiah 53 to, to make sense of how it is that we are to respond to suffering by looking at the suffering servant of Jesus. Now, there are many descriptions of Jesus in Isaiah 53, but Peter emphasizes the verbal aspect. Peter highlights Jesus' words and his speech. Did you notice that? It says Jesus' speech was not deceptive. He did not revile, which, which means to hurl insults or speak abusively. He did not threaten. Jesus never said, I'm going to get you back. Now, why the emphasis on speech? Why, why the emphasis on the mouth in response to suffering? Well, it's because when when you're on the receiving end of abusive speech or you're being reviled or threatened, our knee-jerk reaction is to use our words to either defend ourselves or to attack the other person. Like, don't you think that's true in your own life? Like, like for example, if a family member mocked you for being a follower of Jesus, what, what tends to be your, your knee-jerk reaction if, if you're like me? You want to you get them back with yours. You either want to defend yourself or attack the other person. See, there's this biblical principle that's underlining this this point here, and it comes from Luke 6.45, where it says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so whatever's in here 
It's going to come out in your language and in how you use your mouth. And this is the principle that, that Peter is actually using and applying because in just a moment, in verse 23, he's going to say that Jesus entrusted himself to he who judges justly. And so there's a connection between who you trust in here and what you say with your mouth. And so Peter says, look, look follow the example of Jesus. Be, be careful with your mouth and how you use your words when you're going through suffering uh, or being attacked. And so how are you doing with this in, in your own life? Like for those of you who are going through suffering unjustly, like how's it going with how you use your mouth in response? Like when you feel like you're being attacked or you feel like you're being reviled against, do you, do you notice that your knee-jerk reaction is to either defend or attack? Maybe we can, we can play this game in a different arena. How about, how about Facebook or social media? How are you doing in, in those outlets with using your words? Like if we looked at your Facebook page, we looked at the posts and the interactions that you have on Facebook, is there a common theme of defending yourself or reviling in return? Or is, is your social media just drenched with grace? See, how are you doing with, with living this out? Because the point here is how you use your words, written or verbal, reveals who you actually trust in your heart. See, Peter says, imitate the example of Jesus. And it's amazing when you stop and think about Jesus. Like, like the example that he set, of all the people in the world, he had the most pristine character. Like of all the people, it was Jesus who surely could have given a word or two back to, to revile against. And yet, what do we see Jesus do time and time again? He's pretty much silent. He had this, this confident silence to his response when he experienced suffering unjustly. But don't, don't mistake that for having kind of a, a passive resignation. Jesus had a patient confidence. So does that describe you this morning when you experience suffering unjustly? Do you have a, a patient confidence? See, the reason that, that Jesus could respond with a, a patient confidence uh, in this way is because of what Peter says at the end of verse 23. He says that Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Now, just to, just to be clear, this, I believe, is the key to understanding how we are to suffer unjustly well, that this actually forms the basis, that this is the reason why Jesus was able to, to go through pressure of unjust suffering without sinning. In fact, you can almost view verse 23 as the symptom and verse 22 as, as the, or, I'm sorry, verse 23 as the root and verse 22 as the symptom. That if you really believe, if you really are entrusting yourself to he who judges justly, the result of that will be verse 22. So it really comes down to this idea of entrusting yourself to God. This is the key to understanding how to live this out. And I think it's by, it's by understanding that it's not my job to make sure that justice is experienced every time I'm wronged. Like that's, that's God's job. It's, it's not my job to make sure that people understand that what they did was wrong against me. That living this out and trusting myself to he who judges justly means that you're resolving to trust in God and to release yourself from being the justice police 
of your own life. That it's saying in your heart that I'm trusting that trusting in God is better than trusting in my own revenge. It's saying I don't, I don't know how justice is going to get resolved. I don't know when. I don't know how. But I'm going to trust the just judge who will figure this out. And I, I like how Paul puts this in, um, in Romans 12. He puts this in a very similar way. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Or in other translations, it says, make room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. So how do we live this out? Like, how do we entrust ourselves to he who judges justly? Well, to put simply, I think it really comes down to being convinced if, if, if we are convinced that Jesus' way is better than our way. It really comes back down to, to trusting that God's way of justice is better than my own way of justice, that his timing is better than my, than my own timing. So are you really convinced that Jesus' way of, of dishing out justice is better than yours? I was just wrestling with, uh, with this passage in this week in my own time, just thinking like, Chris, why, why don't you entrust yourself to he who judges justly more consistently? Like, what are the common themes in my own life for why I struggle with this? I just want to share two, and, uh, and maybe you can relate with me. But one of the biggest reasons for me why I fail to apply this passage more consistently is that I, I'm not totally convinced that justice will be done. Like if I was really, really honest with you and, and I revile in return or I use my words not in a godly way when I'm going through suffering, it's usually because I think that that person is going to get away with whatever he or she did to me and that it's up to me to ensure that justice is done. That for whatever reason, like I think that this person like slipped under the radar of, uh, under, under God's radar, and this person is just going to walk free unless I say something. Number two, the second reason why I struggle with this is because when I'm going through suffering unjustly, all I see is what's in front of me. Like all I see is, is the injustice that's been done, and, and I fail to look past that and understanding that there is a just judge who will right every wrong. See, I've got this limited vision, this limited perspective, and all I see is right in front of me. And yet, I was thinking about this, like, as I was thinking about that, instead of that reality leading me to trusting God more, what I tend to do is I tend to hold that issue of when I was wronged against more tightly. I tend to, like, curl my hand and clench it instead of open it up and say, God, I can't see well. Like, all I see is right in front of me. God, you have to handle this, and you have to ensure justice on your own timing in your own way. See, the reality is, is that God sees the past and the present and the future all at once. He sees all of the injustices at once. He has the perfect vision. He has an infinite view of what's going on. In fact, God sees what's going to happen two weeks from now. God sees what's going to happen five years from now or a hundred years from now. In fact, God sees all of the things that, that are said about you that you don't even know about and won't ever know about. Like thinking about that for a moment, it's like, man, yes, like God does have the perfect vision. Like 
that, that should lead me to entrusting myself to he who judges justly all the more. So it really comes down to, like, do you trust in your own way of justice? Or do you trust in God's way? So our response to, to suffering is, is to follow the example of Christ, to be careful with our mouths and to win the battle in our hearts of who are we really trusting. See, there's, there's a call here. that It's not in the text, but you almost get this sense where Peter's like, stop playing the role of God. Like, stop, stop trying to make sure that justice is done. Like, Peter wants to, God's got this. Like, God sees this, and God is the just judge who will ensure justice will be done. And I was thinking of an illustration or, or an example of this, and I was just thinking about the Bible. The Bible is filled with illustrations of, of how to live this out. Just to encourage you, if you're thinking, okay, what does this look like in different scenarios? Just look at the Bible. There's individual after individual of people who are suffering unjustly, and you see the response in, in a very godly way. One of my favorites is the story of Joseph. If you know the story of Joseph in Genesis, he's the favored son, and his brothers uh, really don't like that. And so what do they do? They, they actually sell him into slavery. So, jo- so Joseph goes through unjust suffering with a resolve to trust in God, to entrust himself to he who judges justly. So he gets sold in slavery, kind of moves up the ranks somehow. Then he gets thrown into prison for something that he didn't do. So again, suffers unjustly, gets out of prison, and then becomes one of the most powerful individuals in the whole world. Okay? Then there's a famine, all right? And so uh, his brothers come to him at the Egyptian empire, and they're in need. You remember the story? They come to him, and, and they don't recognize him to begin with, Okay? And so Joseph, let me just read this for you. Let me read you Joseph's reaction to his brothers. Now, if I'm Joseph here, like, I'm going after him. Like, I'm reviling in return. I'm threatening. I'm doing all those things. And yet, look at Joseph's response. Uh, Chapter 50, verse 19, it says, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You see the principle lived out here? See, Joseph had a resolve to say, I'm not God. I'm not the God of justice here. Like, I'm entrusting myself to the just judge. Like, that's not my role. See, you meant this for evil. God meant it for good. So you can see the the root issue in Joseph's heart was trusting God to ensure justice will be done, and the symptoms was how he used his mouth. And that's the example that we have here of, of following the example of Christ who, who, who demonstrated this absolutely beautifully. So number one, we imitate Christ's example. Number two here is we remember Christ's substitution. Remember Christ's substitution. If you remember verse 21, we read that Peter says that we've been called to suffer unjustly because Christ also suffered. That he suffered for us, or he suffered leaving us, and then he suffered for us, referring to this substitutionary death of Jesus. Let me read for us verses 24 and 25. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
for you were straying like sheep, but now have but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I mean, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that the, the way that Peter kind of unpacks the, the death of Jesus and how it impacts us? Doesn't that fill your heart with awe? Like you read that, like by Jesus' wounds, like you have been, you've been healed. Doesn't that fill your heart with like an appreciation of this sense of like God did that? Like the perfect son of God took my place on the cross in order to, to heal me from, from my own disobedience? Like you read those verses and you're supposed to just be dumbfounded that the God of the universe would do something like that in order to bring us healing. And if you're here this morning and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, like you're, you, you're in here and you're not a Christian, you're trying to make sense of all of this, I just want to encourage you that the, the message of the Bible finds its climax in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Like you need to know that on the front end, that, that we make a huge deal about the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus because in that we find the forgiveness of our sins. That in that Jesus, the perfect son of God, took our place on the cross. That he was our sin bearer. That he paid for our debt caused by our own sin and our own disobedience. Not only that, but he's on the cross and he absorbed all of the wrath of God that you and I uh, you and I were to experience that Jesus was your substitute on the cross. And so we make such a big deal about that because that's everything for us, that we don't have to earn our salvation because number one, we can't. I mean, that standard is perfection. No one's perfect, but there's no way that we can be good enough to earn God's favor. So we have to trust in Jesus and in his perfect righteousness to save us from our sins. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that trusting in Jesus and trusting in him and him alone for your salvation is the most important decision of your life. There's not, there's not a more important decision that you will ever make than coming to faith in Jesus and trusting him to bring you healing in the deepest places of your heart. And I just want to encourage you not to walk out of this room, not to walk out of this service without making that decision to follow Jesus and to transfer your faith over to him, trusting in him and him alone. And, and if you want to talk to somebody after the service, I'm going to be down here towards the front. Would love to, to, to talk more about what that looks like. I'm not going to twist your arm into trusting in Jesus, but would love to just share if you have any questions. But besides that, I want us to look at, at this amazing thing that Peter does with the death of Jesus. I want you to see something here that Peter uses the death of Jesus not only to show us that our sins are forgiven, not only to show us an example of someone who suffered unjustly, but Peter uses the death of Jesus as the basis for why we can suffer unjustly well. That actually provides the foundation for how we are to suffer unjustly, and this is our second principle for how to suffer well. Let me show you what I mean by that. Look at verse 24. In verse 24, we read that there's a purpose to Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. That if you look at the second half of verse 24, it says that, showing the purpose, that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. 
Okay, so, so what's this righteousness? So Jesus died in order that we might to live, live to righteousness. Well, this righteousness in this context is going through suffering with godliness. It's going through suffering, not committing sin. It's, it's going through suffering righteously, or in other words, living out verses 22 and 23 with consistency. See, it's dying to sin, and the substitutionary death of Jesus forms the basis for why we can and should suffer unjustly well. If you're like me, okay, like how? Like how does that happen? How does the fact that Jesus was our substitute on the cross actually help us suffer well? Well, Peter highlights two ways. Okay, let me show you this. Number one, first, Peter shows us that our deepest problem has been solved. Peter says that in order for us to go through suffering well, we need to understand that by Jesus' wounds, we have been healed. That the very wounds of unjust suffering that Jesus endured on the cross for your sin has brought you healing and forgiveness and wholeness of life. See, what Peter is trying to show us is that because of the substitutionary death of Jesus, the deepest kind of brokenness that you'll ever experience has been fixed. That the most powerful bondage has been broken. That the worst, most damaging effects have been erased. That the deepest kind of pain has been healed. That you who were once far off have been brought near to God. That Jesus took your sin head on and defeated it. And so look, Peter's point here is that you are eternally secure you are healed. So whatever suffering that you face in this life, it's going to be okay because your sins are forgiven. So what Peter is showing us here is that the worst kind of suffering is hell. The worst kind of suffering is eternal separation from God. And Peter's saying, look, you, that's off the table now. You don't have to experience the worst kind of suffering because you've been healed, you've been forgiven by Jesus. And so any kind of suffering that you experience in this life pales in comparison to that. And so because of that, that should motivate us to suffer well in righteousness and with godliness. It's amazing how he uses the the death of Jesus to to motivate us to continue on suffering uh, unjustly well. But number two, The second thing that Peter shows us through the death of Jesus is that Jesus cares for us personally. He cares for us personally. Look look at verse 25. It says, By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter not only uses the death of Jesus to tell us that our sins are forgiven, but he uses the death of Jesus to show us how much that we are cared for by God. He uses this death of Jesus to show us at what great length God went to to care for us and to bring us back to him. So Peter wants us to know that when we go through suffering, we're not left to ourselves, but we have this good shepherd, this overseer who cares for us. That even though we were straying like sheep, we were kind of following our own pattern and our own model, God has brought us back to Jesus and he cares for our souls. So I think what Peter is doing here is he's, he's writing to a group of Christians who are going through intense suffering for doing good, and yet he's reminding them 
of the ultimate security and care that is theirs in Jesus, their chief shepherd. See, Peter is creating this fortress of safety and a foundation of hope that they can't lose in their relationship with Christ, no matter what type of suffering that they go through. He says, look, your sins have been taken care of. You've been healed. Even though you were straying, you've been brought back. You have this shepherd who is caring for your souls. So because that's true, suffer well. See, what you and I need more than anything when we go through suffering is we need to be convinced that that we're going to be cared for. Like when we go through suffering unjustly, we we need to be convinced, like, who's caring for my soul? Like, am am I going to be okay when I go through suffering? And Peter meets that question head on and assures us that you're not only going to be okay, but you have a chief shepherd and overseer who cares for your soul, who knows exactly what it's like to go through unjust suffering. All we have to do is remember the cross of Jesus. And so for those of us who are going through suffering this morning, you're, you're going through suffering as a follower of Jesus, can I, can I just encourage you with this truth this morning? That your, your family members might mock you because of your faith that different coworkers or your boss, they might, they might make fun of you because you're a Christ follower, that you might feel marginalized in this culture because you're a follower of Jesus and you believe this book. But can I just encourage you that the, the one thing that the world can't take from you is the fact that your sins have been forgiven. The one thing that this world cannot take is the fact that you've been healed. The deepest places of your soul, you've been forgiven by God and you have a chief shepherd who cares for your soul, who is the just judge, who will right every wrong. I don't know about you, but that that just brings me peace. It brings me comfort knowing that I'm not in this alone. I have a chief shepherd who is overseeing my soul. And so how does that that reality impact you today? That if if you're going through suffering today, how does that drive the way that you live in the face of suffering See, Peter shows us how we can suffer unjustly well. That He says that we have an example of Jesus to imitate, that our sins have been forgiven, that we have this chief shepherd who's overseeing our soul. And so he says, look, be godly in light of that. Like, follow the example of Jesus unjustly well. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Because the gospel is worth it. See, you and I, we need to remember that that you're a Christian exile because of everything that Jesus means to you. And when that truth, when that gets embedded into your soul, you are able to let go of your desire for revenge. You're able to let go of your natural tendency to retaliate. You're able to let go of of your knee-jerk reaction of, of threatening. But instead, you can entrust yourself to him who judges justly while looking to Jesus as you keep on doing what is right. By God's grace, you you can suffer well by trusting the one who keeps you trusting. So this passage, I don't know, for me, like it it just kind of struck a chord for me as I was studying and and looking through this. And and there's so many different ways to kind of land the plane as a preacher. Like there's so many different ways to kind of close out a sermon. And I was just praying and just seeking the Lord about our congregation and, and just looking at a room this size. Like there are, there are thousands of different needs represented in a group like this. 
there are so many things that, that are going on kind of behind the scenes in your life. And I know we come up here and we're kind of in our, in our Sunday best, but, but I'm assuming that there are burdens in this room, that there are people who are, who are going through unjust suffering. And so instead of just kind of praying and closing, what, what I want to do this morning, and we've got, we've got two more songs to, to sing as a, as a congregation, I just want to create some space and some time for, for the Lord to just minister to us. That God is the only one who can meet all the thousand of our needs in this room. And so let's just, let's just spend some time just leaning into God, our chief shepherd who is caring for our souls. And so what I want us to do in this moment, and, and you can respond to however the spirit is, is moving in you, but I almost want to view this, this space down here, you can call it kind of the pit. There's nothing holy or extra special about the pit down here, but, but if you're here today and, and you're going through some type of suffering, or you feel like your heart is just burdened today, and, and you want to come down here towards the front and just pray and, and seek the Lord, just kind of symbolically laying whatever burden is on your heart to him and asking the chief shepherd to, to care for you. So I just encourage you to do that as we sing our last couple of songs. Again, there's, there's nothing special holy about this, but this is just symbolically of, God, I need you. God, I, I need to take this before you. And so I'm going to get out and just get on my knees down here and just pray and seek your face. And in this moment, we're going to have a few people who are part of our prayer team just off to the side who'd love to pray with you. Like if you want someone to pray with you or for you, you can grab one of those individuals or if you just want to hit the floor on your knees and just seek the Lord's face through whatever burden that you're going through. And of course, if you're here and you're not a Christian and, and you're looking at this idea of trusting in Jesus and in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you want to respond to that. You want, you want to ask more questions like, I'm going to be up here towards the side or you can grab a, a prayer person. We'd love to, to talk more about what it looks like to trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone for the salvation of your souls so you don't have to go through the worst kind of suffering imaginable. And so I'm going to pray and then when I say amen, I'd love for us just to stand and for us to sing, cry out to the Lord, and just allow him to meet us there in our great need. So let's pray together. God, we just, we thank you, Lord, that you know all of our burdens. God, you know all of the suffering that we go through. God, I give you praise, Lord, that we don't have to hide those things from you, God, that, that we don't have to be embarrassed about them. Lord, we thank you that you promised it to just meet us there in our burdens and in our suffering. And God, we, our hearts, we just want to be faithful exiles in this world. God, we want to be godly. We want to be true light and true salt for you. God, we know that sometimes that, that means that we're, we're met head on with adversity and with suffering. So God, we need your grace. We need you to help us uh, go through those times by imitating the example of Jesus. And so God, would you meet us here? Would you minister to our souls as you promised to do? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.